Okay, so. Wow. Uh, I just got to say you. that I don't think the interview is going to be anywhere near as good as that introduction. <laughs> well, it has to get over. I'll explain to everyone. It has to get over a lot of mistakes I've been making already so far. So uh, we'll see how the rest of this goes. But that could be the best and only part that works. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway. I'll explain. So we have with me today David Aiken of Checkerhead Brewing of Vancouver Island and not Vancouver in Correct. Western Canada. And we can get into rivalries between that because I have no clue about um I, I have a vague idea of the East Coast because my aunt lived in Newfoundland for a while, but uh, that's the only place I know. I've never been to Canada myself. Um, never made well, it yet. Clearly, you're going to have to come over once we finally open. Yeah, I think that's a that's a date. Um, so what we're doing is David is opening a brewery called Checkerhead Brewing, and you're hoping to open in April. Uh, well, the backstory is uh, for 40 years, I've been a comedy juggler traveling around the world, did a lot of stuff at festivals. And then a lot of the later part of my career was spent on cruise ships. And so uh, the the whole idea behind Checkerhead is because the the, the costume I wear when I'm performing is a black and white checkerboard costume. And I've got to the point where I'd even cut the back of my head in a checkerboard pattern in like a haircut. So the nickname checkerhead came out of that. I stopped cutting my hair that way, but I never got rid of the nickname. And so that got then brought into this world of brewing that is happening. You know, it, I got really serious about it when the pandemic hit and I couldn't go out and do shows. Okay. Well, that makes sense. I mean, there's a, yeah, I'm trying to figure out where to. So I better explain a little step back. So David is, he hasn't opened the brewery yet, but Correct. he's working towards it. And you're hoping to open next year. So what we're hoping to do is basically talk to you a few times in between there and kind of track what you're doing and how, you know, what challenges you have, what's sure. working, what's working. And I, because I know myself from having talked to a, quite a few home brewers turned, um, professional i guess is, is or craft brewer or brewery owner or whatever um there's quite a few but i've never quite figured out myself like it seems like a huge step from home brewing to owning a brewery and the i kind of identifying and knowing what those steps are is something i don't really have much of a clue i, I have no clue about so it's a sure. it's a step to take um but maybe before we go to how you started Go back to the juggling. So you've been juggling for <laughs> how did you decide to well you mentioned the pandemic, but like still it's a step from juggling yeah. to brewing to brewery owner. Like it's let, let's go back to the start. <laughs> okay. So uh the the juggling career I started when I was 13 years old and uh just fell in love with I think for me the 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 idea of patterns was something that really connected well with the juggling and the beauty of Juggling is that you can always either add another ball or learn a new trick or take it to a different step. So it was, there was always a challenge involved in it. So my part of my brain that is sort of like that I needed extra challenge, I need to move the, the bar up a little bit at a time, was very satisfied with that. And then when I combined that with being in front of an audience and getting that positive reinforcement from the energy you have from an audience, all the buttons were pushed for me. So I got to perform, which I love doing. I had this pattern driven thing that really appealed to the way my brain is wired and how it works. And uh, I started doing street shows in Ottawa, um, in Eastern Canada, and started touring about 1986, 87, and toured all over the country from, from as far east as Newfoundland, as far west as Vancouver Island, as far north as Dawson City and the Yukon, 
uh, and then started doing cruise ships. And that took me all over the world. Uh, and then festivals, I've been as far as like Dubai, like cruise ships have taken me down to Antarctica, uh, all through the Caribbean, into Europe. Uh, yeah, so it's, it's the, the juggling career was this, this hobby that just hit all the right buttons for me. And then I was able to, you know, take that hobby and turn it into a career. But it was not really a career so much as a lifestyle choice. And I think brewing is much the same that um, brewing, again, the, the, the way my brain works, there's a lot of very oriented processes involved in, in as a, a home brewer. Yes, Brian. So, so yep. if you're if you're used to brewing, you have to know that there's all these steps that you have to you know accomplish at a specific time. So that appeals to the logical part of my brain. But then. When you get to serve it to a customer or a friend, you get that kind of performance environment as well, where you're, you're showing off the, the the labors of you know the fruits of your labor, which is really really fun. And then you know there's a lot of creativity in it. So if you're coming up with a new juggling routine, you've got to tap into your creative mind when you're coming up with a new recipe for a, a different kind of beer. You're taking a look yeah. at what raw materials are, and then you're trying to be creative about either doing something to style or else taking a style and then completely going in a, a different direction from it. So there's a lot of the same elements that appealed to me in my juggling career that seem to be like on point for the brewing career as well. Okay, that it's not something I would ever have, I, I'm sure not the only person who would never have seen that linkage, but now that you explain it, it makes, yeah, it makes sense. Um, yeah. I, I, yeah, like the, the process, the creation, yeah. Um, and even, like, like you said, I mean, I wouldn't really have thought about it, but yeah, the the performance of just seeing people give people beer and seeing their reaction and that 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 is a big feedback i keep getting from people as well that that is like you said brewing is no one seems to be in it because not many people there's a, maybe a handful but not many people are making a fortune out of it but they're making a nice living and they're just yeah. doing it because they want to they, they just love doing the brewing and what comes across as well is like you said that performance and meeting people and having a crowd and, and just the community around it which I guess is very similar. I, I, the other thing too is like uh, my career as an entertainer, I was always about how many tricks can I fit into a suitcase that I can put on an airplane. So <laughs> I was, the the joke amongst street performers is like everyone has the same case because everyone found that this Samsonite suitcase was the lightest possible one. And then you started putting stuff into it. And then you were trying to travel with 23 kilos of, of gear so that you weren't paying excess baggage all the time. Now, when I started working for cruise ships, I was able to carry more than one 23 kilo bag because the cruise lines would pay for the baggage charges and everything else. But you still try to keep everything. So the show business expression is pack small, plays big. And I'm a, a very much a taking that same approach to the brewery that I'm doing. I want it to stay very, very small. Uh, after speaking to a bunch of other brewers, their biggest costs were and hassles were uh, packaging and distribution and then staffing. So if you can make a much smaller operation that doesn't put you into as great a debt, that allows you to still do the thing that you love to do, but then you're, you know, the intention at our brewery is to sell directly from the brewery itself, not to do a distribution, do limited amount of packaging, but do tasting flights and growler fills so that people can come to the brewery itself, pick up the beer and go away. And during the, you know, the, the growler fill process, I get to do the packaging while also having a conversation with the yeah. patron and, and telling the story behind the beer because most of the beers that I make have a story behind them. So yeah, again, that, the performance aspect comes through in, yeah, they'll, they'll, they'll enjoy the beer, hopefully, but they'll remember the story. And I've had people who've, you know, we're not open yet, but we've had friends come and 
we call them beta tasters. So they come, they check it out. And I tell the story, they bring friends back and they start telling the story behind the beer before I even get to it, because they have had such a good experience with the, the sort of the backstory behind the beers, which is not something that I've seen a lot of other breweries really take advantage of. They may have fantastic packaging. They may have a fantastic uh, head brewer who does amazing recipes. But unless there's some kind of story that the, the public can connect with, they're not going to have a, as great an investment in either their experience at the brewery or the beer they're drinking. Yeah, that makes sense. Story is, yeah, I mean, you keep hearing now, you know, everything is story. Everything's story. But maybe maybe we can back to your plan for the brewery on the, I suppose, I suppose the business plan. But how sure. did you get into... You went, you got a home brewing kit for, as a present. Yeah, I got a Father's Day present from my wife and kids back in 2015. And I didn't, like, they didn't know. I didn't know that this thing was going to just hit all the right buttons. All the little checkboxes were like, yep, it's science. Yep, it's creativity. Yep, you get to process. And because of my, uh, I'm, I'm reasonably tightly wound as an individual. And so... <laughs> Brewing is really good for me because you can't rush the process. You just have to slow down and let the process happen as it goes. So for me, it's almost a form of meditation that takes me away from my, you know, anxiety-driven day-to-day life. I just go, okay, breathe into it, follow the process, and you'll get through point one, point two, point three, and at the end of the day, you've got beer sitting in a fermenter, and three weeks later, you've got something that you can share with friends. It's fantastic. <laughs> and was the, like, you started with... Um, with, with kits, I guess. With well, the, the, the kit that I, I was given originally was a Brooklyn Brewing Kit, which was an all-grain brew kit, but you were only making about four liters of beer. And when I showed it to a friend of mine who was also a brewer, like I'd never done a brew batch before, and he looked at it and went, oh, isn't that cute? Oh, you're going to oh, you're gonna make four liters of beer. Oh, that's so cute. Oh, that is so cute. And then the, the story that comes out, you talk to any brewer, they'll say it's the same amount of work to make four liters of beer as it is to make 40 liters of beer as it is to make 4,000 liters of beer, give or take. It takes the same amount of time. Cleanup's yeah. a bit bigger for a bigger system. But if you're going to be brewing... Like, why not brew a little bit more? So my friend Mike got me, um, we went out to a local homebrew store and we got a second batch because we could do two batches side by side in the kitchen. One was an uh, all grain batch. One was an extract batch. And we were able to do them. Like he lent me the equipment so that we could, you know, the big pots and everything that we needed to do it on the stovetop. And uh, I was just giddy with excitement. I was like, we're doing this. This is amazing. <laughs> it was just like this fantastic, amazing, I'm, like beer seemed like this mythical thing yeah. outside the reach of mortal man. And I was doing it, which gave me this enormous excitement. And then when the beer was actually good, when it was fermented out, I was like, I, I got to do this again. I just have to do this again. I, and then I had to do it again. I had to do it again. And that led from, you know, uh, a system that was a three vessel system, gravity fed to an all-in-one, uh, I started using a grandfather. I killed that after about 150, 200 brews, and then got another system that was equivalent to it. And I'm now moving to a much bigger system just because the the process, the again, everything about it just appeals to how I'm wired as an individual. And I, I've described it as, I think, as a brewer, you need that beautiful combination of OCD and ADD. So your, your OCD keeps you on point so that everything happens in the specific order that it needs to happen. But your ADD allows you to be looking at all the things that are going on in your brew house to make sure that you're not missing something along the way. So just, again, it's 
that's how I was wired. It's like, <laughs> I didn't know it was going to work, but when I got this gift, it was just like a sort of a downward spiral or an upward spiral. I don't know how you want to describe it, but <laughs> it just, one thing led to the next, to the next, to the next. And then we, Alert. we were living in North Vancouver, moved over to Vancouver Island in 2018 pandemic hit in 2020. I got a fully funded craft beer and malting course that just popped up out of nowhere. Like the universe was saying, take this course, open a brewery almost. And then uh, did the course through North Island College. And it went from September 2020 to June 2021. And they just started doing another one that was microbrewery management. And I got involved in that too. So I'm taking that course at the moment. So those, those courses help make sure that you you understand all the logistics that are involved in opening a business. Uh, it did a lot for me in terms of, you know, reinforcing the fact that I actually did know a little bit about what I was doing already. So it confirmed that I was on the right track and then helped fill in some gaps in my knowledge as well, which was really, really beneficial. Right. And you wouldn't, I mean, it sounds like you wouldn't have even thought about this unless those courses were there. Right. I mean, it just, it, they just randomly popped up. There's a, a, a Facebook group for, homebrewers in the Victoria area, which is about 45 minutes from where we live. And I'm on that Facebook group and somebody posted, Hey, if you want to up your brewing game, this course is being offered. And I was like, well, it was July, 2020. I was all like, I had been booked to work on the Disney wonder cruise ship all season long in the summertime, a week on a week off during the Alaska season. And that all got canceled because of the pandemic. So all of a sudden I was like, well, I, I, I guess I've got time. I'd never had time to do a course yeah. like that because my tour schedule had been so demanding that I'd be home for a week, five days. And then I was out doing another show and, you know, traveling here, there and everywhere. My wife is originally from Osaka, Japan. I learned how to speak Japanese. I can do my show in multiple languages. So princess cruises was using me over in Japan a lot. So I was flying like all around the world doing these, these shows. But then when everything stopped, I was like, okay, well, you know, my entire identity was tied to being this guy who, <laughs> Yeah, I was, I, that was, I, I was a juggler. And then, well, if I'm not that, what am I? And then the universe was like, well, because you like brewing anyway, we're going to give you a free course so that you can confirm that this is something you should do. And when you were taking the course, did, like, did you have it in your mind at that stage that, yeah, I, I, I am now a brewer and I want, to, I, I want to use this to set up a brewer? Or was it just, I just got to fill my time with something I'm interested I was, in? I mean, from the get-go, like when we moved to this house on Vancouver Island, I was talking to our realtor about would the zoning for our property allow for me to open a brewery from the property itself. And there's another local brewery where they did something similar, where they're similar zoning and the realtor is basically like, well, if they can do it, you're going to be able to do it here too. So knowing that in advance allowed me to, you know, buy the house with confidence and feel like, okay, if, if my dream of one day opening a craft brewery happens, then at least I'm on a property where I can, that will allow it to happen zoning wise. So, you know, it's, so, it's ridiculous. Go, going back to that story about, you know, how much can you fit in a, a, a Samsonite suitcase that is 23 kilos large, the zoning for our property allows us to do a 60 square meter space that can be used as a home-based manufacturing business. Now, if you talk to any brewery, 60 square feet is like, like that's a storage shed for most people. <laughs> But for me, that's going to be the entire operation. Our little tasting area will probably be able to house 12 to 15 people. And, you know, it'll, it'll be a very intimate experience. It'll be all about telling stories. It'll be, you know, trying to drive uh, a passion for the beer that I'm making. But also, uh, I'm, not, I'm not trying to 
compete with the major breweries that are local or, you know, international. I'm trying to create something that's very specific to the region that we're in that has a bit of story that people want to come back and enjoy. And as long as I sell, like I, I per, sort of perceive it more like a farm stand where, you know, you're selling eggs from your farm stand. As soon as you're sold out, you put a sold out sign and you go, well, sorry, uh, if I sell you any more beer today, I'm not going to have any for tomorrow. So I've capped it at, you know, 100, 150 liters of beer that I can possibly sell in the course of any calendar day. And I only plan on being open Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. So weekends only basically, which is, strangely enough the schedule that i had as an entertainer because most of the festivals and stuff that i would work would be thursday friday saturday sunday so very familiar with that uh and then monday tuesday wednesday i'll be in the brewery cleaning and making beer so that i don't have to interact with the the public but i can actually stay on point for the beer that's being made okay and you obviously then lifestyle you get to spend more time with the family right i mean that was that was the big thing during the pandemic having spent, you know, easily half of the year away touring and, and juggling and performing, when I was able to be at this place for two years straight, I was like, wow, that's really nice. I had spent, you know, 35 years running around collecting money so that I could pay for a house that I never got to live in. And when I finally got to live in it, I was like, this is really great. I want to be here more. <laughs> How did the rest of the family feel? They're not trying to get you Get you no. to go. <laughs> <laughs> well, our kids are grown up at this point. So our kids, when we moved over to Vancouver Island, they wanted to stay in North Vancouver where they'd grown up. So it's a very uh, empty nest kind of situation for my wife and I. And we didn't downsize. We upsized. We went from a property in North Vancouver. They do uh, measurements in feet in uh, North America for property sizes. It was 50 feet wide by 140 feet deep. That was the, the city lot size. And we're over on Vancouver Island on a little over three acres. So a completely different environment. And my wife and I said, hey, we're in our 50s. If we're going to have a different experience, like a different interesting chapter in our lives, we better do it now before we get to the point where, you know, we're in our 70s and we don't, we're not going to be physically able to do yeah. it. So uh, the choice to move to the island, the choice to, you know, tackle this huge property and then the, the choice to, you know, well, let's build a brewery. Let's, you know, why not? I mean, you only you only live once. You may as well make it interesting. So we're uh, we're traveling down this path, not knowing uh, where it's actually going to take us. But, you know, with a lot of confidence in the fact that the stuff that we're making is being really well received and there's stories behind everything that we do. And people seem to be really engaged with the stories. So it's really fun. So I'd like another time maybe to come back to those stories, because your website, like I said to you on, on email, one of the things that struck me, if anybody's here, check out, is it checkerheadbrewing.com? Checker, yeah, checkerheadbrewing.com. I couldn't remember. But it's like, you can see the labels on there. Or there is a story behind everything. Um, yeah, yeah. It, it does grab your attention. So that that is something. So, but maybe just go back. I don't know whether to go beers or business plan here, but uh, say say the beers you're, you're planning to go. Are, do you have a, you, you mentioned local. Are you planning some? to have a specific style of beer, specific ingredients from there? Are you going for hazy IPAs all up the road or what's, right, your... right. what's my, my, my plan with that? So I kind of have two streams of, of product that I've been producing. One has been all these clown inspired beers because traveling and, you know, running around the world for 40 years allowed me to meet some of the most interesting people on the planet who, you know, chose a lifestyle as opposed to choosing a career and the stories that I can tell about those individuals are phenomenal and fantastic. So 
uh, one of the catchphrases for the brewery is inspired by clowns, enjoyed by all. So there's a whole stream of beers that are in that series. And then I've got a whole series of farm to glass beers. So we tried to get as many ingredients as possible from the property itself. I grow hops on the property. Uh, we have water from our well. So the well is, you know, the local water sources on the property. Uh, we use um, a yeast strain for any of the farm to glass beers. We, we keep bees as well. So I took honey, diluted the honey, let the natural wild yeast and the honey ferment out that liquid, then mm -hmm. propagated the yeast culture from the honey so that that could be a house strain that we could use for that farm to glass beers. And then there's all sorts of stuff. We have an apple tree on the property. I've used apple in some of the beers I've made. We've got uh, blackberries like crazy. So many blackberries on the property. So I've got a great blackberry uh, wit beer, which is fantastic. Uh, I've got red currants, which are in a farm to glass beer, which brings a really interesting thing. It's not sour, but the, the tartness of the red currants bring a beautiful tartness to that finished beer that suggests a sour but it's not, it's not soured with a, a lactobacillus culture or anything else. It's just the bitterness of the berries that are producing this, this sense of tartness as opposed to sours feel a little bit more acidic and this tartness feels a little bit more tanniny, which is really interesting. Mm -hmm. So it's the two streams of thought are you either do stuff that is very, very specifically targeted to a performer friend of mine who inspired a beer. So for example, I have a friend from New Zealand named Tony Smith who performs as Mini Maniac. And she's a hula hoop artist and circus artist. And she would inevitably randomly show up to our property because she was touring through Canada and became part of the family in essence. And she'd finish a show and she'd always rehydrate with coconut water. She's got a beautiful bubbly personality, happens to be blonde. So I decided to make a blonde ale that was infused with coconut because of all the things that she had inspired and then made sure to use uh, hops from New Zealand to pay tribute to the fact that she's originally from Christchurch, New Zealand. So the story behind the beer and its creation is very much linked and tied to the performer who inspired it. Uh, and because it's a Pacific gem and Rakawa hops are New Zealand hops, I'm not growing those on the property. So I do need to source hops for that beer from an outside source, but it's very specifically chosen to represent the person that is being inspired or was the inspiration behind the beer? Right. right. No. And yeah, I mean, um, because there's two things like that. The farm one, like I said, the local one, the more I see, I think people, well, I, I suppose I, I was about to be broad here and, and say everybody was suddenly going away from hazy IPAs. But that, I think there is an interest in more local stuff in, you know, that is a story itself, you know, that just sure. as you tell where the ingredients came from and what to do. But the other side of it then, like I said, the one inspired by people, you have a whole story about that person. So it does give you something unique that people can can come to you. you you're, yeah, you're like a, well, tourist attraction might be too strong a word, but you're a, you know, you are a, a gourmet restaurant that's somewhere. And that's well, the let's, let's not jump to conclusions just yet. <laughs> I mean, you'll have to come for a visit before we decide whether that's the case or not. But it's very much going to be a, a very small operation, very uh, curated selection of beers. Each of those beers, like if it is a farm to glass ale, like I will walk the, the patron over to the red currant bush so that they can pick red currants during the red currant season and taste it and then taste the beer side by side. So you can actually see and feel and understand that we're trying to really craft something special that is unique to this location on Vancouver Island. And right. we're lucky that there's a couple of other like destination spots 
in the area. I mean, surely where we are, it's, it's between Souk and Jordan River on the southwest coast of Vancouver Island. It's in the middle of nowhere. And literally, you go down through downtown Shirley and you pass the community center and the cafe and that's it. There's like, <laughs> and, oh, and the fire hall. Sorry, I missed the fire hall. So there's a fire hall, the community little center, and then like the little cafe over there. You come down the road a little bit further and you're at Stoked Wood Fire Pizza. But Stoked is only open from uh, sort of mid-May until sometimes Christmas. But this year they closed at the sort of end of October. So it's a summer seasonal kind of region, like surely delicious. The cafe is open year round. And they, for some strange reason, they got written up by New York Times saying that they're one of the best restaurants in this part of the world. And it's just a funky, really cool little shop that caters to, you know, they make great baked goods, great coffees, and people stop there. They, like if somebody's coming out to this region, it's like you have to stop there. You have to go to Stoke. And okay. ideally, it'll be like you have to stop at Truly Delicious. You have to go to Stoke Pizza and just yeah. around the corner, go to Checkerhead Brewing. So come to Checkerhead, pick up a growler with a beer, take it back to Stoke and enjoy a pizza at Stoke with the beer that you got from Checkerhead or take your pizza from Stoke and bring it over to Checkerhead Brewing and get a growler fill and enjoy it like a, at a picnic table and have your pizza here. So right. trying to partner with other local businesses uh, that have turned this little tiny spot on Vancouver Island into a bit of a destination, not a not like a tourist attraction per se, but certainly if this gets known as one of the stops along this route, then I, I'm hoping, fingers crossed, that we will be able to, to reach our goal of, you know, selling X number of liters of beer a day and then putting the sold out sign on the front of the property so that we can take our dogs for a walk and balance a, a passion for doing some really interesting beers with also, you know, quality of life versus quality of work combine the two and not overdo one or the other because you know i'm 54 years old i don't want to work that hard anymore yeah. so that, that brings along so i suppose to the the finance that that dirty word finance but i mean you have i mean obviously not going to ask you how much you invested or anything but you have a very clear idea of what you've, or have you worked out exactly how much you need to sell every day to make this Work. I, uh, well, we're in a really lucky situation in that like we're we're running the the operation from our property itself so we're not paying a commercial no. lease or a commercial uh space so you know that if you're if you're saving thousands and thousands of dollars every month on commercial rent that puts you in a situation where you don't have to make as much money yeah. to begin with you don't have to make as much beer because you're not trying to pay off a debt or uh, an, an ongoing expense so that drops our price down and that means that we can make less beer and still survive. Uh, we're also, you know, we're, we're not going to be brewing at such a large capacity. So our ingredients cost, I mean, the, the balance between the more you make, the more you have to sell, but then the more you have to sell. So yeah. by keeping it small, you're not having to create as much. You're not having to have as much throughput. You can be a little bit more creative about, you know, experimental batches and, you know, God forbid something goes wrong. If you have to dump a batch of beer, you're not dumping 30 hex or 40 hex of beer. You're dropping three hex of beer. So our system, when it's done, is going to be 300 liters uh, final production, really, really small. Uh, we're going to have six fermenters. So, you know, the throughput for that has, so let's say it's four weeks or four days a week, four weeks in a month. You've got 16 days. You're going to be trying to sell beer. I would in my in my fantasy world is you know a uh, hundred liters of beer a day and I shut down 
that would be great. But th whether that's going to actually meet what we need to do on a financial scale remains to be seen. So well, the other thing about yeah, the other thing about beer is it's it stay for. That's a, sorry, that's our dog in the background going a little bit crazy. <laughs> no, but um, like, and beer isn't you know, it's not perishable immediately anyway. Unless, you know. Well, and some of the beers, like I do uh, uh, a Belgian style triple that is uh, uses a significant uh, honey infusion, and that beer gets better the longer you cellar it. So yeah. I'll do like limited edition bottle condition beers that you can cellar. And I've done, you know, side by side comparisons, same recipe, but at, you know, 12 months, 24 months, 36 months, that beer just gets better and better and better. You can tell it's the same beer, but every yeah. time you go to another year of aging, you just go, Oh, oh yeah. okay. Oh that, yeah. Better. <laughs> I, I've had that experience with a few beers too. Um, but that means like that if you are finding that you're you know getting a big lot, lot of stock you're not selling quite as much as you expected you you can shut down brewing for a while and oh yeah, you know, yeah they're, not, they're not perishable it's not going to go off so you have mm. time to sell that it's not you you should never be in the condition where you're actually throwing stuff out really no no ideally like, uh, that would be the worst thing to do that would be <laughs> yeah, crime against humanity selling <laughs> not being able to finish the beard no thanks uh yeah no it's the the other the other reality is that because my wife and i uh, own the home that we're in we're not trying to pay a mortgage with the salary that we're making from a brewery which is like that's a huge thing too because if you're having to pay a mortgage payment all of a sudden your month-to-month -month expenses mean that you have to make more money from this side project and and i watched another one of uh the the podcast that you'd done talking to the guy from Omega Yeast and he was just saying you got to be really really careful when your hobby turns into your job because you might not enjoy it as much yeah. but if you're able to do like what I did with my juggling career which was it never felt like a job I just got to travel around the world and do these really great things I mean at the end it was a lot of sitting in airports getting from point A to point B which was not the best part of the job the the joke in the uh, cruise ship industry is that you get paid your paycheck is to cover the awfulness of traveling and the shows you do for fun. Right. right. So, so in this scenario, it's like, if I don't, if I can sell a hundred liters of beer and, you know, cover our utilities, cover our groceries, cover everything that we're trying to do. Like we live in a place that is so beautiful. We scratch our head and go, why are people taking vacations away from <laughs> this location? This is gorgeous. We look out over the Juan de Fuca Strait, which is uh, between Vancouver Island and Washington State. So we look across Juan de Fuca Strait at the mountains from the Olympic Peninsula, so Washington State, which is gorgeous. And I mean, that's another reason why this area is a bit of a destination, because people are coming for the, the natural beauty. You go a little yep. bit further up toward up the island, and there are, there are two very significant hiking trails. There's the Juan de Fuca Trail, and then there's the West Coast Trail. One is sort of a three to five day, depending on how fast you do it. So you camp and you walk along this trail and then a little further up the West coast trail goes for about seven days. And these are like really, really popular summer destinations. So, you know, if you're going up there, you're going right past where our brewery is. And then just up the road from us as well is one of the local surf beaches, which I know you don't think of Canada and surfing perhaps, <laughs> but you put on a wetsuit and you can go out year round. And one of the best surf, beaches on the island is about a 45 minute drive from where we are as well so you know if we chose to open during the winter the surf season really gets good from about november through march and then it dies off in the, like just the way the tides are it's better in the winter than it is in the summer so there are reasons why this region is 
popular throughout the year. But then again, it's like, do I want to work that hard? (laughs) Right. Right. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. Because I mean, it sounds, you know, but one of the things I remember when the, I think it was Killarney Brewing. Um, I don't know if you know Killarney, but uh, it's a huge tourist town. Mm. And we said like the reason the pubs stock their beer is because everybody, every tourist comes in and asks, you know, what's the local beer? Right. So beer tourism is a big thing. Like when you're, well, it's like everything. When you're somewhere, you want to experience what, what is from there. So it sounds like the perfect, you're in a perfect location to do that. It really is. Like you said, it's a, it's a choice of how much you, of how, how much you want to work that that it's quite open to you. And and a lot of people have asked me, it's like, but what happens if you're really successful? What happens if the, you know, the demand outstrips your ability to meet that demand? And I'll be like, I close earlier. (laughs) (laughs) I close, you know, if I'm open from noon till six, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and I sell out by two, I'll close it too. Like I'll just put up the sign that says I'm closed. I mean, I don't, I'm not, I'm not brewing beer because I'm trying to sell a lot of beer. I'm doing it because I love doing it. And I want to share it with a really interesting group of people who want to get it. But if that interesting group of people shows up and buys out all the beer I want to sell by two or three or four in the afternoon, I'll just put up the sign that says I'm sold out. Like I don't you know that's going to increase the demand for it, though. You're going to end up with queues coming out the door. Well, that great. Then I can sell out by one o'clock, which is even better. Like I, I like I think people get on a treadmill of trying to become bigger, 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 and the 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 danger of that is if you you know you you buy bigger equipment, you buy a bigger space, you are going into debt, and you have to pay off that debt by making more beer and that's when it stops being something you do for fun and when it starts to become something that feels like a job and the stress of you know you go from say you're you know we're using all our own financing to get everything up and running at this point whether we'll have quite enough to finish to get to opening is a bit of a question mark but we're deliberately trying to keep uh, a debt load as low as possible so again that we're not we're not forced to work harder to pay off a debt where we work harder because we want to, not because we have to. And I think you get into a trap and I, I just did a tour of a couple of different breweries up Island and they were talking about how they wanted to expand, get more tanks, get more this, get more that because they couldn't keep up with demand. And in my mind, it's like, well, you're doing a bit of a wholesale distribution model. So you're selling beer for less, yeah. but you have to make more of it to sell it, to get, you know, incremental increase in your actual income versus not buying those tanks, not spending that money, not going into debt, and then really trying to create a craft, a an experience when people come to the brewery. And then, you know, it, it gets to the point, treat it, treat it a bit more like a winery as opposed to a production brewery. And, you know, if it gets to the point where, uh, okay, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, I, I'm going to be open from, you know, noon till six, I'll just start. And I've only got 15 spaces in my tasting room. Just start doing, you know, curated beer tastings and, you know, have it sold as a ticketed price. You know, yeah. you you buy your ticket, you get a tour of the property and you get a tasting flight and you get at the end of it, you get a growler full of beer. That's all included in your ticket price. And then if you want to be here, great. If you don't, that's fine, too. But that'll be another model of potentially doing it like a lot of wineries in Canada will, you know, have a because they're so popular you buy a reservation for their tasting room 
and you have a two hour time frame in which you can go in. They'll tell you the story behind the winery. They'll tell you the story about, you know, each of the wines that they're bringing the sample from. And then you get the choice to walk away with, you know, a case or whatever bottle or two, of whatever the wine that you like the best. So I think that model is more interesting to me than sitting at a canning line for six or eight hours, just running more beer through a canning machine, because that's what you have to do to meet the nut that you've sort of set for yourself. Like I would rather do less. I would rather keep it smaller and cater to a a clientele that could pay a little bit more for the experience. And, and people are, they're chasing experiences as much as they're chasing a a can of beer or a bottle of beer or or a pint of beer. So I think think you've hit it there. It is story and experience. Everything people will pay for experience. They'll pay for the story. Like everything else is, it's a commodity. Like you were saying too, that, you know, if you, if you set a limit on how much you're going to be selling, it actually increases demand. So, you know, uh, yeah. So, um, what's the, the Trappist beer in, yeah, like they, they only sell from the Abbey or from the, the, it's Abbey or is it the monastery? It's it's a monastery. Yeah. So they only sell from the monastery. You have to, you know, you register before you go and buy the beer. It's very curated. And then, you know, the people who buy those beers end up selling them on eBay and stuff for a ridiculous amount of money because there's a limited supply. Yeah. And the, the, the monks aren't trying to make more because they're just doing it as a way to fund and finance the monastery so that it's, you know, if the monastery needs an upgrade, they'll make a bit more beer so that they can pay for the upgrade. But I, I, I see that model is a, a very healthy approach as opposed to doing more. And maybe this comes a little bit because of uh, my experience and my exposure to my wife and her Japanese culture, because in Japan, you'll have your train station and then you'll have uh, a covered arcade street. So a shotengai is what it's called in Japanese. And along the, the covered arcade street, you'll have your vegetable seller, your fruit seller, a little grocery store, the people who have the, the rice, the people who sell the tofu. And they're all typically mom and pop shops, like little tiny stores. And what they've established is we need to sell this amount to cover our costs and have a comfortable life. Do you need, okay, so let's say it's the people who sell the tofu. They go, it, we, our rent is this amount. Uh, we have two kids and we want to send them to school. So that's going to cost this amount. Our utilities cost this amount. So, uh, and we can sell our tofu for this amount per block. How many blocks of tofu do we need to sell to make the money that we need to have? Okay, let's just say 100 blocks. So they make 100 blocks a day. And once it's sold out, it's sold out. And everyone in the, the, the little shopping arcade street knows that they have the best tofu. And if you want to get it, you should go first thing in the morning. Or maybe if you're lucky, if you're coming home from work, they'll still have a couple of blocks. But they, they figured out what they need. They make it. And they live a very comfortable and modest lifestyle. Because they're not trying to grow and be bigger and better and stronger and faster. They're just like, what is sustainable and what is, how can we guarantee that we're making a really top-notch quality product as opposed to let's blow the walls out of this place and make three times as much. Maybe the product is as good, but you're then going to have to sell it as well. You know, it goes back to, again, you saying, uh, or me saying that it it takes the same amount of work to make 30 liters or 300 liters or 3000 liters of beer, but you have to sell 3,000 liters of beer as opposed to selling 300 liters of beer. And if you have to sell 3,000 liters of beer, that means you have to stay open longer unless the demand is such that you can just blow it out at the same speed. But you're still 
3,000 leaders is that much more work, which means that if you can't do it all yourself, you're going to have to hire staff and then you have to pay the staffing costs. And then it, it's a, you're chasing your tail trying to get yeah. bigger when maybe, you know, selling a hundred blocks of tofu was a better model than trying to, yeah. you know, grow and expand. So yeah. So it's starting off with what you're happy, what, what your lifestyle wants to be and then working towards that rather than yeah. just trying to earn as much as you can and then trying to figure out what you're going to do with it or, or and most of that being paying off debt, you know? Right. Like, I mean, I'm, I'm I got to say, I'm super, super lucky that the career I have had and continue to enjoy as an entertainer, as a juggler, I, I mean, that made me enough money to cover so many of the bills. And I, I was just smart about how I saved my money anyway. I wasn't just getting it and spending it, getting it and spending it. Uh, I treated it like after I got married, after we had a couple kids, I treated it much like a business where uh, the money that I was generating from the contracts that I was doing, I never treated it as though it was my money. So you took a salary from it. You paid, uh, like my wife became the, the office manager. So she received an office manager salary, but the account itself was never touched as though it was really my money. So I learned how to not spend in a way that a lot of people don't necessarily, as soon as they get a paycheck, it goes straight out the door. And I'm going to treat the, the brewery much the same way is that, you know, it's, it's not my money until I pay myself a salary and I put that money in a separate bank account. And it, the, the, the two are, are, there's a, you know, a division between church and state, yeah. so to speak, so that the, the personal money is much different than the stuff that is running the business. And, and I hate being in debt. So any money that we do use to open, I will make that the top priority to pay that back before I start taking a salary myself, just because, you know, it just doesn't feel comfortable. I don't like the idea of owing anybody money. And, yeah. you know, there are investment people who say there's good debt and there's bad debt. But to me, all debt is bad. I just don't want to be in debt. So yeah. it gives you more choices if you don't have to pay somebody back. And especially who knows if we're going to run into another pandemic or whatever else that will affect your business. Like my income was basically stripped away from me when the pandemic hit because I couldn't go out and do shows. I tried doing online virtual shows, but they were just not fun. So I didn't want to do something I love doing at. 10% of its effectiveness simply for the fact of, you know, collecting a paycheck, I would rather find another way, another thing that I was passionate about that could drive an income that would give me much more joy than sacrificing what I loved about performing and putting it in an online environment. So, you know, you, you sort of bounce and weave with what you've got. So where are you at right now in, in terms of the brewery? You're, you have the plans, well, you, you have the facility, and your yes so, so we um part of the, the course i took it was really interesting that they uh they one of the major assignments so it was broken into six sort of sections in the course and one of the sections was the business of beer and that made you write out a natural business plan which was a very very useful exercise so it forced you to you know check on the pricing for your equipment check on the pricing for what you were going to do be doing in terms of a space you're going to be putting it into what the renovations were going to cost and everything else like that so uh, it also showed us like in british columbia you have to run everything through um cannabis is legal in british columbia and it went under the government branch that is handling alcohol and cannabis products so it's the liquor and cannabis regulation branch is the, the provincial part of the government in British Columbia that allows you to set up and manufacture alcohol. So you have to apply to the LCRB to get your permission to build or to you get what's called the approval in principle. 
So you send in your business plan. They look at what you're suggesting you're going to do. And they go, we approve this in principle. Now go ahead and do your renovations. So we, we got our approval in principle December 7th, 2021. And that allowed us to move forward with, you know, trying to move forward through renovations. And we submitted a, a renovation plan to the building inspectors who are the local region that we're in. And the building inspector's office is incredibly understaffed. And so we ended up having a nine month delay between when we submitted our, our application for building permit to when we actually got it approved. And that only got approved. So December, you know, we didn't get approved until the end of July, basically. So the, you know, your approval in principle gives you in theory a year between when they give it to you to when you're supposed to open or when you're supposed to get the liquor inspectors out to check your equipment to make sure what you said you were going to do is what you ended up doing. But we couldn't move ahead with the, the project because we didn't get the approval for our building permit. When we finally did get it, the first thing that needed to be done was that the building where the brewery is going didn't have any plumbing in it. So we had to break up the concrete slab, rough in the plumbing, and then have a new slab poured in. All that's been done. And the actually today, a company is coming to do a, a product called Rhinocrete that it goes on top of the actual concrete floor because beer is acidic and all the cleaning products that you're using to clean your tanks can destroy a concrete floor in no time flat. So this is a, a epoxy concrete hybrid that gets a top layer for your floor. So you, you can drag kegs across it. You can move your equipment across it and you're put chemicals on it and it's not going to deteriorate the surface. So I had uh, experience talking to a bunch of different brewers who had had bad floors in their breweries. And one of their biggest pieces of advice was get your floor done right the first time because you never want to have to redo it. Okay. So, so we're, we're, that process is happening in the next few days. So once our floor is in, then we can start moving the equipment in. We've got the equipment. Uh, it needs to be put into place. It needs to be, you know, as part of the whole build out for your brewery, you have to get the building inspectors back to make sure they approve of the roughing for the plumbing. They have to approve of the, the, the framing for your walls. They have to then come in and approve of the electrical. They have to come in and approve of everything. So step by step, we're moving in the right direction. And originally you were asking, you know, when were you hoping to open? Well, in my mind, the perfect time to open a clown inspired brewery would be April Fool's Day. So right. we're, we're, we're gunning for April 1st, but whether that actually becomes a reality or not depends a little bit because there's, you know, construction, there's always going to be delays. Things are going to, you know, go sideways or cost more than you expect them to. Or, you know, we've been really fortunate when working with a general contractor who has been, okay, you want to save some money, you do this and you do this and you do this. And I'm like, okay, I'll do as much of that as I can. Um, then uh, one example is, we're doing, we're going to, I'll be doing all the painting with a neighbor next door who happens to be a painter who also happens to like beer. And so I've been brewing him batches of beer on my little homebrew system so that I can basically get a little bit of money in the bank for his labor so that when I have to paint the interior of the brewery, it's like, it's already been covered by, you know, seven or eight batches of homebrew that he's been happy to get and I'm happy to make it. And so it's amazing. I don't know if it's the same where you are, but beer seems to almost be like a currency. You can, <laughs> you can yeah. use it for all sorts. Like we were at this morning taking our dogs for a walk and one of our neighbors has chickens. And so we traded beer for eggs and they were, they were thrilled and we were thrilled. And, you know, until you officially open, you're not allowed to sell your beer. So 
you know, trade seems like a, a good way to, to navigate things, which is great. Right. Well, I'm just seeing there, even your trade, your like your whole idea of having ticketed, you know, you're coming to see the place and we'll just give you a beer on top of it seems a possibility if you're, if you're yeah. really stuck. Well, I mean, it, there's, it's funny, like, I, I can't sell beer yet, but if people roll up or if people find, like you found me, which was like, how did that happen? Um, like we put ourselves on Google Maps. And so if somebody's in the area and hits, you know, brewer, local breweries, we pop up and they'll, they'll often reach out through either the website or through social media and say, hey, what are your hours of operation? What can you do? And I'm like, I, I'm not officially open yet, but if you'd like to come and see what we're working towards, that's great. And when people show up, I, I, I stop them and I just say, Thank you for coming. Thank you for finding us. We're not officially open yet. And as a result, I need to ask you three important questions. Question number one, yes or no, are you a liquor inspector for the province of British Columbia? Because clearly I'm not open and I don't want to get into trouble for doing something I shouldn't. Yes or no? No. Well, then I can move on to my next question. Would you like to become a beta taster for Checkerhead Brewing? <laughs> yes or no? Oh, yes. Third and final question, what is the first rule of Fight Club? Together, we don't talk about Fight Club. And much the same way, you're allowed to come, you're allowed to enjoy the experience, but don't go telling the world that this is happening yet because I don't want to get into trouble before I even open. And the only other caveat I tell people is I'm not allowed to charge you for beer. So at the end of the experience, if I put out a hat like a street performer does and something ends up in it, that's great, but that's on you. It's not on me and I'm not selling you beer. I'm just trying to establish a bit of a word of mouth uh, right. sort of at this stage because the last thing you want to do is put yourself into jeopardy of opening by doing something that you shouldn't. Yeah. Now, I'm still a passionate brewer like on a homebrew scale because that's what I've got uh, to work with. And so I'm producing beers all the time, just trying to you know perfect recipes, take things that are inspiring to me, going out and finding local ingredients. Like I, I just was testing um, a beer that I call Liquid Christmas which has got a bunch of fresh ginger in it, a bunch of orange peel and uh, spruce tips that I went around and collected in the spring. So there's no shortage of spruce tips where we are. So again, having, it, it just tastes like Christmas. I mean, it's like you, you get a little bit of the, this, that, that aroma of pine tree in your yeah. beer, but not so much that it's overpowering to the point of tasting like you're drinking a tree. It's just like that suggestion of it, which is really, really lovely. So you, you, you know, you, you get inspired by the place you are in and you try to craft beers that are an interesting, you know, a nod to the location as well as a nod to the performer friends that you've made throughout the years, like I made through my career as an entertainer. So just super fun. Right. So, I mean, it sounds like, like I said, we we're, can't cover everything today because hopefully we'll talk again in a few weeks anyway. But, yeah, um, please. But uh, would you, if someone else is homebrewing at the yeah. moment, and they're they were thinking about setting up a brewery. What what piece of advice would you give them? Would it be to attend the course? Would it be to set your your kind of ambitions for a lifestyle? What what do you think would be the one thing that? Well, this is this is every brewer I ever talked to was uh, I, I want to open a brewery, and every piece of advice was don't do it. Like every single person who you talk to who's in the brewing industry says don't do it. Don't do it if you're trying to make money. Don't do it unless you love it. And even if you do love it, know that you're just going to be cleaning more than you're doing anything else. So as long as you're okay with all that, then, and you want to move forward, uh, try to set yourself up. So you've got as little debt as possible going into it. Don't be afraid of growing a homebrew system 
a bit at a time. Like it depends on your local regulations in terms of uh, in Canada, they have sort of a minimum annual production to be considered a commercial brewery. So if your local region doesn't have that, you know, maximum or minimum production amount that you have to do every year, then there's no reason why you couldn't start with a, like a 50 liter or a hundred liter system to start a brewery and then just grow organically. Don't spend money on stuff that you don't need to uh, try to do as much of the work as you can yourself or find ways to not cut corners, but like, use beer as trade. So Jeff, our neighbor coming over and helping paint the place in exchange for a few batches of homebrew means that I get to brew beer, which is something I like doing. And I get help getting the work done in the brewery for, you know, not actually paying money, but paying with time and energy. So find ways to do things uh, in, in clever ways that get you open without it costing you every single thing that you've got. And, and again, there's, you don't have to be a 10 hex system or a 20 hex system to make a successful living at it because yes, it's the same amount of work to make three hex as it is to make 30 hex, give or take. But the, it's easy enough to make the beer, but it's then how to get rid of the beer. And then if you're going to be out trying to sell 3000 liters of beer, you know, on a weekly basis, you're, you're setting yourself up for a whole lot of work. Whereas you, you may end up making more money by selling 300 liters of beer than you would from 3,000 liters of beer because you're not having to work as hard. You're not having to drive as far. You're not having to do distribution. You're not going to have to do as much packaging. All the things, like the, the things that I saw that other brewers were doing that I least was interested in was uh, a ton of packaging. So you're, you either have a bottling line or a canning line and you're spending ridiculous amounts of your day just watching vessels getting filled up and capped or, or canned and sealed. So I didn't want to do that particularly. So doing a, a smaller volume meant that I didn't have to do that as much. And then um, distribution. So like if you're going to get in the car and take a bunch of beers and sell your beer wholesale, you're, you're making a fraction of what you're going to make if you sell at actual retail. And so are you better off selling less at retail and making a higher profit margin or making more because you think that that's what you're supposed to do, but making actually less profit from it because you can't like it, if you're selling that much and you can't sell it from the brewery itself, you're going to have to find other outlets for it, which is wholesale. And then you're just not going to be making the same kind of return on that investment of time, energy, and money. So put your, put your time into where it's going to best serve you and don't put it into a scenario where you're going to turn, if, it, if you're a hobby brewer and that's what you love doing, don't turn it into so much work that it stops being fun. Yeah. That makes sense. And um, yeah, I suppose, and the summary of that is like, and don't work for the bank. <laughs> right. Work. That's it. Yeah. That's the other thing. It's like, if, you, if you're putting yourself in so far into debt that you're constantly trying to catch up, that's, that's the worst scenario to be in because then you feel like you are exactly that, a slave to the system, a slave to the bank. And if you can, you know, Give yourself as little of that as possible. You're going to have as a lot more freedom to chase and pursue the beers and the passion that you have for brewing, without it feeling, um, you know, laden with anxiety about are, are we going to be able to pay the bank back for what we've borrowed from them this month? You know, find find investors, find friends who are willing to help get you set up and write out, uh, uh, you know, do it legally. Get a legal agreement between you and your friends or anyone who wants to help you get up and running and 
you know, do things like a crowdsourcing um, campaign. So if you want to open a brewery and you've got a great logo, you can set stuff up so that you can go, we're, we're chasing this amount of money to get this up and running and say like for us, we have six fermenters. And if one of the like fun uh, GoFundMe projects or however you want to do it, Kickstarters or whatever else is you get to name the fermenter. It's like, if you want to, at this level of, of uh, financial, you know, input you get whatever it is the t-shirt and uh, the souvenir growler and 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 you get to name the this fermenter will be named after whatever you want to call it and if you want to call it you know fizzy pop can we'll call it fizzy pop can we'll put the labeling on that fermenter and that is yours so every time you walk into the brewery you've got something that you recognize as yours and you know, the breweries that I was up at uh, this past weekend, they, their fermenters were all named and they were named after one brewery. It was all named after local streets. And then the other one was all about people who had been really influential in the opening of their brewery. So the, the one head brewer said, if you're not naming these things, you're, you're actually, you know, you're throwing money down the drain because people want to have that kind of ownership and they want to have that kind of support of the local business. So you know, it's just fun to see creative ways to make money that isn't actually borrowing it from a bank. You can find money in all sorts of different sources. Right. So just, and, you know, partner, find partners that are interested in doing it, be they people who want to, you know, if it's a, a couple of different homebrewers who want to get together and do it, great. But it, it does turn into a marriage if you're in that kind of a situation. So make sure you've got it, both an entry structure and an exit strategy so that you're going in and you have a way to get out if it ends up getting sticky for any reason and just be smart. And then think about it this way too. Like uh, my wife and I had um, had kids, had a chapter for about 20 years of our lives. That was what that was. We're, we're going to be parents like of young people, bring them, get them through school. And then they're going to start having their lives of their own. So they hit 20 ish and they are out the door and they're doing their own thing. Well, then this chapter is also, we're looking at it as a 20-year chapter. We're going to move to the island. We're going to have this great property. We're going to work really hard um, doing all sorts of things that we love doing. Uh, but then at the end of it, have an exit strategy. So part of the reason why I chose a 300-liter system was also because for a large brewery, that's a pilot system. So they'll be able to, I'll be able to sell the equipment when I'm done. And right. when I leave, when I get to my 70s, if I don't want to do this anymore, I can either sell the property as is for somebody else who wants to have the same adventure that I had with it, or I can just sell the equipment and sell the property as two different things and, and get out. But I, uh, another piece of advice from another brewer was like, yeah, have your exit strategy in place because, you know, if you're super successful and you want to get out, it's hard to leave if you're on the, you know, the hamster wheel of just chasing, trying to keep your customers happy all the time. So find a balance, find a balance between, you know, making sure the customers are happy, but make sure you're not sacrificing your own happiness for the sake of the happiness of your customers and making beer, something you love, feel like a job. That sounds, I mean, it's the best advice I've heard from, from a brewer for, for a long time, to be honest, because a lot do get on that treadmill and they get, yeah, it's got to expand and expand and like I said, I get stuck in that. So maybe we should leave it there because um, we've been talking for an hour anyway already. So um, we should let you. You sound like you have someone coming to fix a floor as well. To... Yeah, we got people putting a floor in today. So I got to go check out what's going on with that. And I've got a, a batch of that a Blackberry Wit that I was talking about before that I got a bottle. And uh, yeah, life continues to be an adventure. 
if you if wake up, the other piece of advice that was given to me recently that was really, really good was, you know, if, if you're thinking you're going to be able to open a brewery in six months, that's great. Don't think about six months from now. Think about what you can do today to move your plans forward. And today for me, it's like going and dealing with these guys who are putting in a floor and bottling a batch of beer. So if you get through, if I get through today and that stuff has moved forward, then I feel like the whole project has moved forward and right. uh, you can, you can do anything. But you <laughs> might do it. Just take a step at a time. Yep. Well, uh, listen, um, maybe in a few weeks, I don't know, maybe we'll see closer to Christmas or just after Christmas, depending on how much, how many of those steps you have. Maybe we can have a chat again. And because um, I still wanted to ask you about the the labels, particularly on, on oh, the sure. that they're, like I said, so much to go check out your website because it is the labels on that are really eye grabbing and you can tell there's a story behind them. So that's something maybe we can talk about next time and sure. see what steps you've made. So um, listen, thanks. Again. It's been a brilliant chat. That the hour flew by for me anyway. It was fantastic. So um, what I'll do is I'll just play out another little video here just to kind of close the thing off, and then um, we'll talk to you. Hopefully, this hopefully this is streamed live. If not, I'll put it up later. <laughs> if I press the right buttons or not. If not, I'll yeah. upload it. But um, thanks a million. I'll play this out for everyone. Perfect. Uh, if it comes up. <laughs>